Okay, so maybe you were around in 1999. If you weren't, uh, well, let me just fill you in. There's a few of you, you know, that you just lit up and you smiled because you weren't here. And uh, so in 1999, there was a guy named Daniel Dukes who, you may remember this, he snuck into SeaWorld. He thought, well, first of all, he thought, hey, it's a great night to go for a swim. And if I'm going to go for a swim... Why not go for a swim with a killer whale? I mean, that makes complete and total sense, doesn't it? And so he snuck into, uh, now we don't know whether he just hid and, you know, then he came out once everybody's security left and everything. We, we don't know what the case is, but we do know that he decided, great idea, go swim with a killer whale. And so he sheds off all his clothes and he decides to go for a swim. And then when the uh, workers showed up the next morning, they found Daniel Dukes dead surprisingly. Shocker. You go swimming with a killer whale, then, you know, you probably won't make it. But interestingly, he, um, when they did the autopsy, they found that he died from, uh, basically from drowning and hypothermia because they keep the water cold, you know, because they're killer whales. And, uh, and so that's what they, they came to find. But here's, here's the interesting thing. Now, his parents ended up dropping the lawsuit, but his parents sought to sue SeaWorld. And why were they suing SeaWorld? Because we got to have somebody to blame. And so they sue SeaWorld because they're saying that SeaWorld was liable, and this was the reason for why they said they were liable, because they portrayed a killer whale as being friendly and people-loving. I guess because you, you have this theme park and people come and see the, th- the killer whale, they think, okay, well, you're portraying him as being some, something that he's not. But, you know, here, here's the thing. I guess calling it a killer whale, maybe that wasn't enough for them. Or, or maybe it was that all the security and all the measures they had taken to make sure that people couldn't actually get in with the with the killer well, that this guy went all around and did everything that he could to do and go someplace that he should never have gone and do something that he should have never have done. But the truth is, is that this is, this is an example for us. We, we all want, um, we want someone to blame for our stupidity. We, we want somebody to, we want someone else to be negligent for the dumb things that we do. That, I mean, a lot of times that's just, that's just the case. And so we're prone to, to just ignore the warning signs and blame anybody and everybody but ourselves. And that's just human nature. And so we see this all the time. We do dumb things. We go off on somebody. It's not our fault that we go off on them. Well, if they hadn't done this or said that, then I wouldn't have had to do what I did or say what I said. And so there's just this natural thing. We, we have a tendency to justify our actions if we're being honest. And so as, we, as we've been studying through the book of, the book of Judges, um, let's just be honest. This is not a very encouraging book. I mean, we talk about this, this, this unfolding grace of God, and it is. It's, we were talking yesterday, it's like, you know, if God didn't make the promise to not flood the earth again, wouldn't he just have wiped everybody out? Because it's just like this continual just cycle of just evil and wrongdoing, and not just... You know, it was such a dark time in the history of Israel, in, in the time of the people of God. 
And Judges serves as this giant warning system that says, don't go here. Killer stuff happens when you go here. Okay, don't, don't do that. This is going to happen. It's not a book of, of warm and fuzzies. It is really just a dark period in the history of, uh, of Israel. And just Israel continues to go round and round. And we've seen this over and over again. That for 16 chapters, what we've done is we've seen Israel just go off the deep end and then suffer some hard consequences. And then ultimately, at some point in time, years, sometimes decades later, they cry out to God. And then, they, then God comes in. He sends a judge. He sends a deliverer. And then it doesn't take long for the, sa- the people to do, go off and do the same dumb thing that they did before that ended caused them to end up in the place that they were. And so it's just for 16 chapters, there's this downward spiral of sin. And it doesn't matter. It hasn't matter how many times God warned them. It hasn't matter how many times they knew defeat or experienced defeat or experienced suffering or how many times they saw the miraculous work of God. How many times they saw him come in and, and show this unfolding grace that they definitely didn't deserve. It didn't matter. They always seem to find themselves right back in the same place. And here's the, here's the thing we can take away as we, we begin tonight. The people of God refuse to learn the lesson of importance of wholehearted obedience to God. That's what God's trying to teach. That's what he, where he's trying to, like he's trying to show us that it's this, this wholehearted obedience. He wants, he gave everything for us. And what does he want from us in return? All of us. Our wholehearted obedience. And God has over and over again, he has raised up these judges. And so whether it was Othniel or Ehud or Deborah or Gideon or Jephthah or Samson, as we've seen, like he raised up these judges or these these rescuers to come in. And so as we get to these last five chapters in the book of Judges, and really the the last two messages in this series, what we're going to see is we're going to see that what this insight of this moral condition that the people of God have, have been in. And he's recounting some things that, that have happened. Now understand that this is not, uh, when we get to chapter 17, this isn't in chronological order. And so it's not like this happened after. So last week we were, last two weeks we've been talking about Samson. And so we get here, it's not like we're, we're now following what Samson did. Think about how we started this study. And really, the first couple chapters were just summarizing really the entire book of, of Judges. And so what we see here is this is recounting, really just talking about the moral depravity of the people of God throughout this era. And it's, he's looking back and recounting some things that really kind of put things in perspective for everything that we've seen through the book of, seen through the book of Judges. Okay, so it's flashing back to some earlier stages in the history, not long after Joshua had died, uh, actually. So... These stories that we're going to look at over the next two weeks, these stories are intended to teach us what happens when we turn away from the authority of God's Word to our own religious and moral opinions and ideas. That's, that's what we see. Now, there's, there's uh, a verse that's, uh, that's repeated a couple times over the next uh, five chapters. So in Judges chapter 17... Verse 6, this is in our text tonight. It's also on your handout. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We'll see this again in chapter 21. But let's just be honest. 
If you've been paying attention at all, this isn't the first time we've heard this, is it? We've seen this over and over and over and over. It's really, it's this theme of, of the people of God and their problem that they created for themselves. They just did what was right in their own eyes. Or, or maybe your translation says everyone did as he saw fit. And this is the thing that, that I want you to think about. They were convinced that they were doing right. They were doing, they, it didn't say they were doing what they thought was wrong in their own eyes. It says they were doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. So one of two things is true. Either they're completely and totally blind or they've convinced themselves that what they're doing is right. And probably a mixture of the two. But the truth is, is they think, now think about all the things that we've, we've studied. Think about the violence. Think about the idolatry. Think about the immor- uh, immorality. And they thought they were They thought they were right. Think about the value systems that they had come up with themselves and the moral standards and the religious doctrines and practices and all the things that they were doing. They had completely and totally lost touch with reality. And they had completely and totally lost touch with the authority of Scripture and the authority of God. They had had pulled back from that. They had lost touch with everything and they thought that they were doing what was, was right. There was no absolute truth. They were, they were in this sea of relativism. And that's all that was left. And this is why I think that, that this is what makes judges so practical for us today. That, I think this is what makes it so relatable for us today. Because we live in a culture where there are no standards. That everybody just comes up with their own idea of what what is right and what is wrong here's the basic philosophy of the world we live in for for the most people for the modern person in our culture this is the philosophy whatever seems right to you do it i mean do i have to convince you of this whatever seems right to you this is the philosophy of most of the people in the world in which we live in so whatever is true for you is what? Is true. Whatever's true for you. Now what happens when your truth and my truth contradict each other? It doesn't matter. We just stick our head in the sand and pretend like, okay, well, you know. No, it, do, it doesn't matter. Whatever is true for you is true. And then, not only is it true for them, but now we have to accept it as truth. We, we must accept it as truth. Would you agree with that? Now, I thought about I thought about a thousand examples. Honestly, we could sit here tonight and I could hand the microphone to y'all and we just go around the room about all the ways that this is true. We could pass it around and talk about all the conversations that you've had and people like, well, I believe this or I believe that or I believe that. Well, I believe that that pew is green. Well, I believe it's blue. Okay, well, whatever's true for you, right? Well, don't argue with me and tell me, you, but there's this whole, but here I just thought, okay, well, we'll take the, the biggest example of this the most extreme example of this the example of this that is um, spreading like wildfire in our culture and we've really seen this just gain traction over the last several years but it's crazy how it's just it this this is just the perfect example of what we're talking about what is it am i going to go there i am so what is it 
we get transgender. We, we get to determine. It doesn't matter what sex you were born. It doesn't matter your DNA. It doesn't matter your chromosome. None of that matters. What do you think you are? What do you think you are? Well, I think, I think I'm a woman. Or I think I'm a man. And then what do we have to do? We have to, we have to accept that as truth. That's what we have to do. We have to accept it as truth. And so it's crazy to think, well, it's true for me. And not only that, but you have to refer to me as that preferred pronoun. You have to, you have to refer to me as that. In some states of, across the country, and I'm guessing that this is just a matter of time before things filter uh, across the nation, but now when your child is born, you can check male, female, or neither to be determined. Well, we've got to figure out what they, what they believe themselves to be. And so if you live in California, you can, you can do that. And, and again, it's just a matter of time before that continues to just sweep across our culture. But it's, hey, it's whatever, whatever, whatever makes most sense to me, whatever I believe to be true is true. Whatever is right in my own eyes is right. And so you see how this is just as relevant for us today? And think about this. Think about anytime somebody, think about if you are seeking advice from somebody who's not a believer, which I would strongly recommend you do not do. But if you're seeking advice from somebody who's not a believer, and maybe, and maybe even in this room there are people who are like, well, no, I have said that. Well, stop saying it. Whatever makes you happy. Whatever makes, what should I do? Well, whatever makes you happy. Well, that, this person no longer makes me happy. Well, I don't care. You made a covenant before God. Figure it out. Yeah? You see what I'm saying? But no, but that's not the kind of advice that we give now. Well, if they no longer make you happy or if this no longer, or whatever makes you feel good, whatever feels right for you, then that's what you should do. Because we determine what's right and wrong. There's no absolute truth. We just pursue our feelings and what makes sense to us. And that's the world in which we live in. And that's the world, that's what we've seen consistently all through the book of Judges over and over and over. The people did what was right in their own eyes. And every time that happened, they're headed for destruction. Why is that? Because when there's spiritual relativism, moral collapse is inevitable. That's what's going to happen. Moral collapse is inevitable. And then the consequences of our choices are going to come to rain down on us because God loves us. Because he loves us. Now we're going to see tonight, I think we oftentimes struggle in our world with consequences and the lack thereof. But that's not the kind of God, uh, the kind of father that God is. He, he fathers in a completely different way. And so he brings down consequences and discipline that is painful but it's for our good because it brings restoration it brings restoration all right so in judges chapter 17 let's read the first six verses chapter 17 verse 1 there was a man of the hill country of ephraim whose name was micah and he said to his mother the 11,000 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. 
And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 11,000 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and a household uh, and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's our verse. Now, there is a multitude of things that are wrong with this whole situation. There are so many things wrong with what's, with what's going on here. But let's just stop for a second and talk about what Micah's name actually means. His, me, his name literally means who is like the Lord or who is like Yahweh. And it's ironic because everything that Micah is about is in complete contradiction with the nature and character of God and the actions of God. Micah does everything wrong. First of all, he's a thief. And he steals 1,100 pieces of silver. This is a huge amount. Here in a little bit, we're going to, once we get a little bit farther in the story, we're going to meet a Levite. And, and Micah pays this Levite 10 pieces of silver a year. 10 pieces of silver a year for his wages. And the Levite is completely and totally content with that. He's totally fine. So we're talking about 1,100 pieces of silver. This is a huge amount of money. And not only that, he's a thief, but he steals from his own mom, which talks about just the depravity of, of where we are. And let me just say this. You don't, you don't wake up one day and you're like, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to steal 1,100 pieces of silver. That's like saying, uh, oh, okay, I think, I'm gonna, I think today I'm going to go become a heroin addict. It doesn't, you don't start there. You start somewhere else. And so there's been a process to get to where we are. And so what we see here too is that there's, that, that Micah and Micah and his mother both honestly are extremely super, superstitious. And so he hears his mom cursing the thief in the name of the Lord. And so he's terrified. He, he's like, okay, well, this is going to end poorly for me. And he's like, I'm, it, it was me. I'm the thief. But I know that, man, if there's any consequences that are going to come from this, like, it's going to be bad. And so he comes clean. He returns the money. And what does his mom do when he returns the money? Does she give consequences for his, for his actions? No, she returns. No, there's no punishment. There's no discipline. There's no consequences. There's a blessing. I'm going to give you something because you know what? You may be a thief, but you're an honest thief. And so just justifying the actions, just completely glazing over what's been done, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you. And, and the purpose of this blessing was to ultimately to, to cancel out, the, the hopes of it anyway, was to cancel out uh, the curse that she had spoken. And notice that she uses really this um, it's interesting that she's, they don't build an altar to Baal. She's, she's mixing these devout termin, this devout terminology with pagan practices. She's, she's mixing the two. And so in, 
in verse 3, whenever she says, um, says, and he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from, from my hand, from my son, to make a carved image. What, what, is, what is the second commandment that God... Now, I'm not talking about some minuscule, like, far-off, like, command of God. What does the second command of, commandment of God say? Not to make carved images. Am I correct? And so, on your handout, it says, uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Exodus 24, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. And he says, in the next verse, he says, not to bow to, to some false idol, not to serve some false god, that that's idolatry. What we see here is we see a veneer of worship of the Lord, but in reality, it's idolatry. She's presenting it as being this thing, the spiritual thing, trying to present it as being the spiritual thing. But ultimately, what it boils down to is idolatry. You can call it what you want. You can present it however you want. And what we see throughout the Word of God is this unrelenting testimony of Scripture is teaching us that idolatry is harmful. And it's stealing something from God that, is, that God deserves. And so what does Micah do? He steals and he makes idols and he establishes this false priesthood. I mean, that, like he, he takes his son and makes him a priest. You don't get to pick how to do this. Like God has established how things are to be done and that's the way you're to do them. But he's like, hey, you know, I don't have a Levite and so we're just, my, my, my kid's going to become the priest. Well, you don't get to do that. And he's got this shrine and he's got all these different all these different things, but it's just disobedience after disobedience after disobedience. And Micah and his mother just admitted their own little religion on their own little hill in their own little house. That's what they did. And they just took from, from the different things, the things that they like. And so just, it's just this melting pot. Well, we'll take this and we'll take this over here and we'll take this over here. And here's what they were trying to do. They were trying to worship the true God with their own idols. That's what they were doing. They were trying to worship the true God the way in which they determined. Hey, I'm going to worship the way I want. I'm going to, I'm going to make this how, how I want it to be. And it doesn't work like that. And, and this, is, this is important for us to understand. What we worship and how we worship matters. What we worship and how we worship matters. It is clearly, clearly laid out in Scripture. Clearly. I mean, again, it's not like this minuscule verse. It's the second command where we can see that they're already going off the they're going off the rails. They're going down a path that they shouldn't go down. It's clearly laid out in scripture for our good. And one of the things that's true, and this is important for us to understand, one of the things that's true is we become more like whatever it is that we're worshiping. We do. Whatever we worship, we become like. And so, and so what happens is, is you either become, this is what I thought about today, you either become blind, deaf, dumb, and ineffective like false idols in your own making, or you worship the one true God and become conformed into his image. And so we become more like these empty, dead, deaf, dumb idols. And maybe that's why the people are so blind and they think what they're doing is right in their own eyes because they're off worshiping these things and they're just becoming like that which they're worshiping. 
Maybe that's what's going on here. But here's, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. So I, I think a lot of people in the room are like, okay, well, Brian, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't have a shrine. I don't have any carved images. I don't have any metal images. I don't have any of that going on. Here's what I think is uh, the greatest threat to us today. Our greatest threat isn't carved idols, it's mental ones. Here's why I say that. I don't think it's carved idols. I think it's, I think it's mental ones. You ever hear people say things like, I like to think of God as, and then just fill in the blank. You ever, you're having a conversation with somebody and you start, you start having a conversation and maybe says, yeah, well, I like to think of God as, and maybe these are attributes of God, but like they just want to put him in the, I like to think of God as forgiving. And God is forgiving. But the only thing that they want to think about God is being a forgiving God because I want to go live my life however I want to live my life. And I want him to just be okay with what I'm doing because he's a forgiving God. Then I can go do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want because God's a forgiving God. Well, he is a forgiving God, but also God is a God of justice. God is a God of justice. And so, but we live in a world where people mentally... They just want to define God in a way that's comfortable for them. So I like to think of God as being blank and just fill it in with whatever it is that you want to fill it in. But here's the thing. It doesn't make the slightest bit of difference what I prefer God to be. It doesn't make, it doesn't make a bit of difference what you think God is. It doesn't matter. You can think that pew is blue all day long. It does not change what color the pew is. God is who he says he is. God is what he says he is. It doesn't matter what human beings think is true. God is. God is. And so our human concepts of God are completely and totally irrelevant. This is a little wordy, but think of it like this. God has revealed himself, and he demands that our understanding of him conforms to what he has revealed about himself through his word. He is who he says he is, and he's what he says he is. And that's why any false image of God, any sort of this, is forbidden. Think about this. So last night we had family over for dinner, and a friend of ours was over too, and um, so we, my dad, when he came over, he brought some pictures, and of course, they were old pictures, and they weren't necessarily flattering either. They just weren't, you know, and the comment was made uh, that, man, you look better today than you did back then, right? I'm like, okay, well, that's true, because they were really, I mean, they were, they were bad, and so we, there were pictures of me, there were pictures of our family, there were pictures of our kid, and so then we started poking fun at Goose, and Savannah and just had their, and then Goose was mad at us because we allowed him to wear certain clothes, right? And I said, "You can don't we nothing. You blame that on your mama because I didn't have any say on what your hair looked like or what clothes you were wearing. Nor did I really care. So I guess maybe I am to to blame. But but we know what it's like to to have a bad picture of us. Agreed. We know what it's like, and especially you know back in the day." Uh, you didn't really know. You just took the picture and then you went and had it developed. Well, that's not the world we live in today. 
The world we live in today is my wife says, hey, let's take a picture, which doesn't mean let's take a picture. That means let's take 25 pictures and I'm going to look at them and make sure that they're good before we're actually done taking, we're done taking pictures, which I don't mind taking a picture. I don't mind taking two pictures. Over two, we start running into problems. <laughs> I'm just being honest. But, but we know what it's like to have a, bad, have a bad picture. Some people could care less. Some people will take pictures of people and then post it online without even thinking anything. Eyes closed, mouth open. Like, it doesn't matter. We know what it's like to have a bad picture of us put out for the world to see. And we don't like it. Agreed? Especially the women in the room. You know what I'm talking about. We don't like having a bad picture put out there for... When my wife takes a picture of the family, she has to get approval from not everybody, all the women in the family to make sure that we can present this to the world. We could understand that, right? Or let's think of it like this. Let's think in terms of we know what it's like to, to have our motives misjudged. We know what it's like to have somebody to lie about us or present us as being a certain way or saying a certain thing, and it's not true. And it hurts. And we don't like it when we're misjudged or misrepresented to the world around us. We don't like it when there's a bad picture out there. Well, what do you think about if you're, the, you're perfect and you're holy and you're righteous and you got people that are presenting you as being something that you're not? No, don't do that. Don't do that. And so how, the question we have here is like, how did they get here? How did they get here? One, one of the saddest phenomena of the world we live in today in our time is the number of parents who do not communicate any true values to their children. That's just, that's just truth. And so children will steal from their parents and there's no discipline or direction. I mean, that's what we see here, right? So I'm married to a school teacher in the public school system. She's been teaching in public schools for going on 25 years now. And the, the school system that she teaches in and works in now is not, not anything, does not remotely look like it did 25, 25 years ago. And she's taught in a, in a mostly affluent school in her past, and now she teaches in a, in a school that is mostly just poverty, high poverty level. And so she's taught uh, affluent and, and poverty. And really, it's true for both. It's, it's not like, okay, well, this is a problem here. This is a problem there. They're, they're the same problems. And there's all sorts of problems. But let's just kind of look at what we see, what we see here in this text. But, but think about this. Think about how there's so many parents today that don't want to be parents. They want to be their kid's friend. And so that, there's no way in the world that any discipline or consequences are going to take place because I don't want to I don't want to jeopardize my relationship with my kid because I want more than anything for them to be my friend and to be liked and accepted by our children. That is mind-blowing to me. We want to be liked and accepted by our kids. You're going to answer. You're, you're, You're held responsible, not for how they turn out, but for what you do with them while they're entrusted to your care. And God doesn't care if, they're, if you, they like you or accept you. Okay? And so, but that's the world in which we, that's the world in which we live in. And, and it's not the school that lacks discipline. 
It's not like, okay, well, the school just won't do anything. The school's just like, you know what, there's no point because their parents aren't going to discipline at home. Why am I going to try to instill something in these kids for this limited time that I have with them when their parents are not doing this at home? It's pointless. And so the problem is, is there's, there's this lack of home discipline. And when you do try to punish or, or give consequences or discipline, For some undeniable wrongdoing, you are met with opposition from your parents because there's no way that little Johnny could have done that. And even if he did, even if he is a thief, he's at least an honest thief. Right? Because we see the best in our kids, and our kids could never do do anything wrong. I was thinking about, I hate to be one of those guys that says, well, when I grow up, you know. But the truth is, is it was different when we grew up. If you got in trouble at school, you got a whooping at school, and then when you got home, you got another whooping. That's how it was. Now, it's like, you better not touch my kid, and they're going to come up, and they're going to defend, and they're going to they're be in opposition to anything that you want to do, any kind of discipline. They don't deserve any kind of consequences. You just don't understand. You don't know this. You don't know that. It's defended at any cost. My baby couldn't do that. And there's no discipline. And all they do is come in and clean up the mess behind their kids continually, over and over and over again, cleaning up the mess of their kids. Well, guess what we see in this passage of Scripture? We see a mom who's doing the very same thing. He does wrong. There are no consequences. She comes in and cleans up his mess and actually blesses him. And the truth is, is we actually hurt those we love when there are no real consequences for disobedience. That's what we're doing. We're hurting those we love when there aren't any consequences. If you go and read, you should go and read the entire passage, but in Hebrews chapter 12, it says this, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every, every son whom He receives. But culture doesn't do that. Culture thinks that's a bad thing. And so culture sweeps in like this mom and cleans up the mess, and there's no discipline. You want to know how you end up with a kid who steals 1,100 pieces of silver? You reward him when he does that. That's how you, guess what? What's rewarded is repeated, right? Is that not true? What's rewarded is repeated. And so what does she do? She she rewards him. How do you end up with a teenager who has complete and total disrespect for authority? How do you end up with a teenager that has complete and total disrespect for authority? You let them do whatever they want when they're kids. With no consequences for their actions. That's how you end up with a a teenager that has complete and total disrespect for authority. You know what you do? You make excuses for them when they don't listen or obey you. Oh, well, you don't know what, you don't know this, or you don't know that, or, oh, well, you know, they just have a little temper, or we make excuses. Because here's what that mom did. She made excuses. She made excuses. She turned the other way. There weren't consequences. There weren't consequences. It's cute when our two-year-old says no. when they're 16 years old it's not so cute anymore well you think if you don't correct them at two 
that they're just going to, on their own, determine what's right and wrong. They're going to determine that, that, no, they're going to determine what's right in their own eyes. They're going to determine what is, what is right or wrong. You know what happens when you let your kids run wild when they're little children with no boundaries? They grow up and they run wild. They're just bigger and more destructive. And the consequences are more painful. Consequences are so important. When they're small, they're just a little terror. When they're grown, they're not a little terror anymore. Consequences. Consequences. And here's the thing with Micah. All he was doing was was representing the mood of his time. This was just a representation of the mood of, of the time in history that we see here. He was doing what was right in his own eyes. That's what he was doing. And that's what happens when we leave kids to raise themselves. And so I I would say this. And so believe me, I've had a thousand conversations over the past 25 years with my wife. And of course, it's no consequences. It's being best friend. But when you leave a kid to take care of themselves, and that's really the case for so many today. Kids are raising themselves. And when you leave them to raise themselves and to to fend for themselves, then they're going to determine for themselves what is right and what is wrong. And so when we let our kids raise themselves and we just let them go off and do whatever they want and determine this and determine that, then what we end up with is we end up with, with um, well, we end up with, with kids that determine the mood of our time. And we got to be careful that we don't do that. That we don't let our kids represent the mood of our times. Because that is the mood of our times. Understand that. This is the world we live in. This is currently what it looks like in our culture. Maybe you live in a bubble. And maybe you don't realize, but I'm just telling you, this is the world in which we live in. This is it. And we don't want to, we don't want to do that. We don't want our kids to represent the same thing. And that happens by being apathetic or indifferent or lazy by not disciplining. All right, verse 7. Verse 7. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. And I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me. And be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver, and a, uh, ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, "Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest." And so it's there, there's this. Self-serving, this, like, it's what do I, what I, and again, there's a thousand different things that we could talk about that are, that are wrong with this. But understand a couple things, because I believe this passage is telling. That Levites were men who had a call upon their lives. And they were, they were appointed to specific cities, like God had given them a place to reside and to dwell and to serve Him. And uh, 
he's probably, now we don't know this for sure, he's probably not supposed to be in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was not even a Levitical city, but that's where he was, and now he's wandering about again. And it tells us a lot about the times. It tells us a couple things. Okay, well, well, the people weren't interested in having a Levite, okay, because they, the moral depravity, like there was, there was no need, and they didn't, they didn't care about the things of God the way in which uh, they should have. But also that this guy, he's just looking for, he's just looking for a place to, to be, a place to dwell, a place to prosper. That didn't give him the right to leave. It was contrary. What we need to understand is that it was contrary to God's will for him. And so let's, let's just talk about this man for just a second. He was a man who was no longer satisfied with God's arrangement. God had a clear arrangement. God had a specific plan. So what did he do when he was not satisfied with God's arrangements anymore? He made his own. And you know what he did when he made his own? It says that he was content. It says he was says he was satisfied. And that's true at least for a little while. Because we're going to continue reading here in a minute. And we'll see that, hey, wait, when something better comes along, I'm... I'm just going to move along to the, to the next best thing. But he falls right in line here with the idolatry worship, with, with what's going on with Micah and his mom. He does what he wants, the way he wants, when he wants. And when him and Micah team up, it's a perfect conversation. So Micah wanted a Levitical priest to validate his homemade religion. The, the Levite wanted a place. He wanted a job. And this is what you get when, when two men partner together with no principles. And what happened with this Levite is he began as a dissatisfied individual and then he compromised, he compromised, and then he began to influence Micah. And then what's going to happen is, is he's ultimately going to be responsible for an in, leading an entire tribe into idolatry. So let's read in verse 18, starting in uh, chapter 18, verse, starting in verse 1. Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel... And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe to Zorah and from Eshdale to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim to house of Micah and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said, Now they didn't have any place to ask this question. He didn't have any place to answer this question just nonsense and the priest said to them go in peace the journey on which you go is under the eye of the lord then the five men departed and came to laish and saw the people who were there and how they lived in security after a manner of the sidonians quiet and unsuspecting lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth and how they were far from the sidonians and had no dealings with anyone and when they came to their brothers and zora and Eshtel, their brothers said to them, What do you report? And they said, Arise, and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And, we'll do no, uh, and will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, 
You will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious for good. And God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack in anything in this earth. And so understand where he says in verse 1, he says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe, the people of Dan, was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then there had been no inheritance upon, among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. And so they're seeking a place of their own. They're saying that we have no inheritance, but don't think for a second that God has failed this people, that God hasn't given them an inheritance. God assigned a portion between Ephraim and Judah, and Dan refused to trust God. Dan refused to, to go in and drive out the, the Amorites. That's why back in chapter 1, it says the Amorites pressed through the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. See, Dan's unbelief and disobedience forced this tribe into the hills. This was not God's doing. This was their disobedience, their doing. And so they were left with two choices. We can repent of unbelief and trust God to keep his word, which, by the way, is God's will. Or we can look for a new area, one that looks good to us, one that we, that we like, and then a comfortable place that's, that we like, but not where God has established or what God has ordained or what God has set out to be. And then we can sneak attack them, right? And so what did Dan do? Dan chose the easy place and the easy way. That's what Dan did. They chose the easy place in the easy way. They were dedicated, dedicated to ease. Why fight a juggernaut when we can blitz lash? Like, why? And Dan's love for ease goes hand in hand with idol worship. See, they wanted this self-made God to fit their lifestyle without making demands. So what did they do? We're not going to read the whole passage, but what did they do? So before going and attacking Laish, what did they do? They went back to Micah's house, and they gathered up all the stuff, the carved images, the metal images, the, the, all the shrine, everything in it. What did they do? They, they go and gather everything up, and then they say, the, and then the, the Levite priest is like, hey, hold on, um, you shouldn't do that. And they're like, no, you should come with us. Like, okay. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, you shouldn't do that, but I'll go with you, you know? And so, like, now he's just, he just rides along with them. He, he goes along with them. So they set up this Levite to be their, their priest. And so this is, this, again, it goes hand in hand with this, with this idol worship. And there's a, there's a, there are a lot of great dangers that face us today in our time. And there are a lot of great dangers that, and I'm not saying this is the greatest, but I do believe the, uh, there's probably not one that's any greater than this. There's no greater danger faced by American Christians than the love of ease. It's so tempting for us to carve out a lash for ourselves. It just is. To, to make for ourselves this quiet island, this, this cul-de-sac of peace, and, and, and seek and, and pursue affluence, and maybe still, still, look, look, we're still going to include God in the equation because that's what, it's not like they're completely and totally denying God and building altars for Baal. No, they're keeping God in the equation, but it's on their terms. And so we're still going to attend a church and maybe even give to some, to some of God's work. But this sacrificial suffering 
for the kingdom of God is so foreign to the American church. Now, I'm not saying that's true for everybody in this room because I understand that our church is very different. And I'm not saying that we have a perfect church, but I understand that, that there are a lot of people in the room that get this, that genuinely get this, that it is, you, you are fully committed. You are wholeheartedly surrendering to the authority of God. But for, for most of the church in America today, we just want ease. We want to be able to give a little money to this thing so that we convince ourselves that we're doing good. I think a couple weeks ago when Chandler was, was preaching, he made the point that like, we're to radically follow God. Like there, We make comments like, well, they got saved. Man, they just radically saved. No, that's what it looks like when we look in Scripture. The problem is we don't see that when we look at the American church today. And so when somebody is radically living for God, it is so different from the rest of the church. And that's the problem because everybody is just embracing this Christianity of ease and of comfort. And we don't want to do anything hard. We don't want to do anything, but we convince ourselves we do what is right in our own eyes. We still do the religious practices and things. We just create for ourselves a God in our image. And that's when we get ourselves into, get ourselves into trouble. That's what's, that's what's going, on, going on here. Why sacrifice or suffer when we can be comfortable? But the reality is, if you want to settle down into a life of, as a comfortable Christian... You're going to have to serve an idol. You're going to have to serve an idol. You're going to have to do what is right in your own eyes. That's the only way to do it. Because if you look to Scripture, if you look to the character and nature of God, if you look to what God is calling us to, if you look to that, then you're going to see something completely different. And so you're going to have to create for yourself an idol. If you're going to be casually concerned about the eternity of the people around you, if you're going to be casually concerned about that, you're going to have to create for yourself an idol. That's just the truth. If you're going to be casually concerned about the spiritual needs, about spiritual development of, of Christians, about, if you're going to be casually concerned about making disciples of all nations, if you're going to be casually concerned about those things, then you're going to have to create a God in your own image. And the truth is, Let's go back to where we started this conversation. When I gave the example of just like uh, how, how our culture and kids today. Let's just be honest. It's easier to let our kids do whatever they want to do. I don't, know, I don't know how many times we had this conversation when, when our kids were younger. Me and, Suzanne, I, I, me and Suzanne would have this conversation. I'd be like, it would be so much easier if we weren't believers. We, it would be so much easier. Because how many times do you hear, well, so-and-so is doing it. Well, so-and-so's parents don't care. Well, so-and-so, like, everybody else is doing it. What's the big deal? Well, we're not everybody else. But it would be so much easier just to say, you know what? Go do whatever you want. You'll turn out fine. I mean, I turned out okay. But it would be so much easier if we're honest just to do that. See, it's hard when we have to, let's just be honest, and we're just using the illustration of, of parenting here, but whenever we bring discipline or consequences to our kids, it affects them, but who else does it affect? Us. We <laughs> suffer, right? So we know that when we're going to give consequences, yet yeah, they're going to suffer, but ultimately we're the ones that are going to suffer. And are we really willing to do that? It's just easier just to say, you know what? 
just let them do, just let them do. So this this whole idea that, hey, it's easier to let them do whatever we want. And we, there's something in us, like this danger that we just, we just drift towards ease. We drift towards comfort. And so we do nothing. We do nothing. And that may be easier now, but it's costlier in the long run. You know why? Pay now or pay later. Either way, you're going to pay. Pay now or pay later. Either way, you're going to pay. You need to see the outcome of Dan's commitment to easy living. So let's flip over to chapter 18, verse 27 and on. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab. Then they built the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born in Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, which there's a ton right there, but we don't have time for, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he had made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Okay. When we look at this passage of Scripture, and we, it looks like, does it not look like it worked out beautifully for them? And, and don't we sometimes see people that, like, they do wrong, and it just seems like it continues to work out in their favor every single time. And you look at them, and you're like, hold on, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm doing the hard thing. And it seems like I'm over here, and I can't get, like, I can't get any traction, but I'm looking over here, at the, and they're doing wrong, and it looks like it's just working out beautifully for them. And there's this temptation to, to give in to ease because everybody else is doing it, and it looks like it's working, but guess what? It's not working. It's not working. And so you, one of the realities is, is that you don't reap the harvest that you're sowing immediately. If you were to flip over to First Chronicles, whenever... The list of tribes of families in Israel is given. You know who's left out of that list? You know who's ignored? Dan. Dan. Dan didn't take what God had given them. Instead, Dan took what God had not given them. And in the process, they lost everything that they had. They lost everything that they had. See, we've got to do the hard thing. We're, again... Pay now or pay later. Either way, we're going to pay. And so we can take the easy route today, but there's consequences to that. There's consequences. And so let's be a people who are doing the hard, doing the hard things. I don't know about you um, as we land the plane. Uh, junk food? Now, I know we all have different preferences, and right now we're entering into uh, the Christmas season, and so there's one thing that comes out during the Christmas season. I know some of you, you look forward to and maybe just like all the Christmas candy or whatever it is. I really could care less about candy. And, but the, the little Debbie Christmas tree cakes. 
I, I could care less. There's no way that there's any nutritional value to that at all. You know why? Because you bite into one of these things, and then your mouth, there's like this weird film on your mouth that you can't get rid of. It's on the roof of your mouth. It's on your teeth. There's this, like, I don't know what happens, but some of y'all are like, yes, I love it. Like, that's, like, I look forward to the weird film. Well, is it even food? I feel like it's like one or two molecules away from not even being, not even being food. And so there's a lot of like junk food that I could care less about, but then there's a lot of junk food. So sweets really aren't my thing, but you give me some chips and dip, man, I will get like, I, so salty's more my thing, but the point is, and like we could talk about candy, we could talk about sweets, we could talk about cookies, we could like, but these things, they have zero nutritional value. You convince yourself that there's eggs in it or whatever, and that somehow it's good for you. No, it's not good for us. There's nothing good about it nothing but it is so good it always tastes so good see nobody's ever having to force themselves saying i really had to force myself to eat one of those little debbie christmas tree cakes no you say that about broccoli because you know that there's some nutritional value to what we're talking about but the junk food there's nothing there's no point other than this taste amazing but what it does is it spoils our appetite and the thing is is it doesn't it doesn't immediately destroy us which would be great i feel like it would be better like if we ate an oreo cookie and then if it was immediate but it doesn't work like that you you know you you eat terribly while you're on thanksgiving break and then you're like well what's the point till we get after christmas there's no point and so we just continue to eat terribly, but we don't like immediately suffer the consequences of that. But then you, you've actually braved getting on the scale and you're like, what has happened? What's happened? What's going on here? But it doesn't immediately destroy us, but it destroys us just the same. The th- same thing's true with spiritual junk food. There are great consequences. There are great consequences. I'm convinced of the three things that we really talked about, and and we'll we'll talk about them one last time here. I'm convinced that there's no modern Christian, there's nobody sitting in this room that is not enticed by one of these in some way, shape, or form. We are. And so when it comes to spiritual junk foods, when it comes to spiritual junk foods, when we look at Micah, we see this junk food of self-made religion. Self-made religion. Where we just make up for ourselves what we, what we want to believe. We, we make up for ourselves. We, we, worship, we worship idols, which really is anything in our lives that we attach worth to or importance or, or purpose more than, than God. That God is, is due, that belongs only to Him. When we find our worth or our purpose in anything other than Him. Or the, perp- the junk food of self-seeking service. Self-seeking service. That's what we see in the Levites. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to go and look for a place for me. And I'm going to do what seems right in my own eyes. And I'm going to build my own kingdom. And then lastly, the junk food of easy living. The junk food of easy living. Which I think probably is the greatest danger of, the, of these three. And I think there, there's a danger in every single one of them. But we have got to be so careful. We've got to be so careful that we don't get caught up 
and chasing the same things that the world around us is changing, chasing. We got to be so careful that we, that we don't parent the way the world parents, but we parent the way our Heavenly Father parents. That we do the hard things, even when it comes to the things that are most important to us, when it comes to our families, when it comes to, we've got to do the hard thing. And it's so tempting to choose the easy way, to choose the easy path, to take a shortcut, to do things our own way. God's not saying, hey, my way's easier. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure he says the opposite of that. Doesn't he say that his way is, is that, that the world is on a path and there's a, there's a gate that's wide because most of the people are heading this way and that way's what? Easy. But there's a narrow gate. There's a narrow path. And difficult is the way, but it is so worth it. It's so worth it. That's the path of no regrets. That's the path of no regrets. That's the life that he's calling us to. And so hopefully we can look at these huge warning signs in, in chapter 17 and 18 and 9 and be like, okay, that's a killer. That's a killer. That's not only a killer for me, but that's a killer for the people around me. Not going that route. Not doing it. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. Thanks for, again, being a God who, who speaks. And, um, Lord, help us tonight to learn from, from this passage. And, um, God, help us to, Lord, to, to be the people that you've created, created us to be. Help us to be reminded that we don't, God, you weren't created in our image. We're created in your image. That's the way it is. And so we, we want all of our worship to go to you. We don't want to worship ourselves. We don't want to worship our, our kids. We don't want to worship a life of, of ease. We don't want to worship anything other than you. But that is a daily struggle and a daily grind. And so help us to, to keep this at the forefront of our mind, that we worship you with all of our heart, wholehearted abandon to you and to your will, submitting to our Heavenly Father who loves us, who is a God of unfolding grace. God, we are so undeserving and so unworthy. And we confess tonight that, that if we're honest, that these things are often true of us. We don't want it to be true. Help us to be more like Christ today. And when we get up tomorrow, help us to be more like him tomorrow. And just to grow and be the people you called us to be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. You got about... Four or five minutes before you...